Welcome to Startup to Last, a podcast about building profitable software businesses that are meant to last. Hi, I'm Tyler. I run a bootstrapped SaaS company called Less Annoying CRM. And hi, I'm Rick. I'm the founder of Leg Up Ventures, which owns and operates software companies that empower underdogs. This week, we're going to talk about how to raise non-dilutive funding. Um, by dilutive, I mean uh, if you raise money from an investor and give them equity, that's a form of dilution. Um, so we're going to talk about ways to raise money without doing that. So pitch competitions, uh, grants, loans, bootstrapping, and so on. Rick is going through this right now where he's deciding how to fund his new startup. And so we're going to talk through all the different options. But first, let's give some updates on what we've been working on. What's up? Uh my brother's in town from Boston this week, so uh, working with him a little bit, which has been cool. Um, I guess I got a few updates here. So uh, yeah, okay. So that was one of them. Um, we do have a company-wide party scheduled on Friday, which I'm pretty excited about. Uh, we do these a few times a year. It's always a good the, time. Is it, is it just to be together and celebrate life, or is, it, is there a purpose to it? Um, sometimes we have a plan, a, a purpose. Most of the time, it's just like it's been a while. So normally we do one at the end of the summer with the interns and stuff and then one around. It's like kind of a holiday party, but we're always late. So that's what this is. But since coincidentally, we finally finished launching that redesign last week, we're going to kind of sort of call it the 3-7 launch party. But that wasn't planned. The 3-7 launch party. Yeah, like we it. got like little banners to hang and stuff. <laughs> you, is it like 3.7 or is it? Uh, yeah, sorry. 3.7. Okay, cool. Version 3.7, but we've been working on it for, I'm not exaggerating when I say four or five years. We haven't been working on it. We've been planning it for like four years. Cool. So uh, over time, you just start calling it 3.7. <laughs> I love it. Um, um, what else? Yeah. Uh, so I've been working on a lot of marketing stuff recently. Um, I've kind of wrapped up a few things. So like there's the the redesign of Less Annoying CRM's marketing site. Um, I'm far from finished implementing that on every page, but it's going to it's gonna be a long process getting every page moved over. I got the homepage, the signup form, the pricing page, and the product tour, which are kind of the main ones people see when they are evaluating us. So I've I'm moving on from that. I'm going to come back to it later, but I moved on. I also just, this isn't deployed yet, but it's in the process. Uh, we are, we used to have an affiliate program. We kind of killed it because we didn't think much was coming of it. We still let people sign up, but they had to reach out to us and ask. We didn't have any marketing for it. It wasn't a sign up that anyone could, could fill out. Um, we're deciding to reopen it because actually the affiliate program has turned into a somewhat meaningful channel for us which is weird. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. J just like a couple, you know, if a couple good affiliates sign up for, and they've all got like their, their own, this isn't like general affiliate marketers who are repping a bunch of products. This is like someone who is a business coach and has a hundred people. And he's, he's like, I want a system for them all to follow. Part of the system is going to be use less annoying CRM. Um, so we just have like two or three of those right now. And it's been good enough that we're deciding to reopen it. So as soon as the next deploy goes out, uh, the affiliate program will be open again. That's cool. I, I, uh, it takes a lot of, you, you constantly have to be recruiting new affiliates for this to work, but, mm -hmm. and, and, and then just focusing your time on the ones that actually produce. Um, but 
you yeah if the more you add um and then the more you can I- better identify the likeliness that they're going to be successful and impor- you know give those people the resources it it works i mean yeah. you know, we both know this from zane benefits mm-hmm. and i actually think we're sort of oddly a fit there are some reasons why an affiliate program is a challenge for us primarily that our price is so low no one can make that much money off of it but something we've got in our our toolbox is alex who's our head of business development his strength is kind of engaging in long lasting relationships and like working a long-term relationship and really making the other person feel special and helping them. It's not a helpful skill when we're selling $10 per user to user companies. So it's not worth him going out and selling the CRM directly, but if he can go out and recruit one good affiliate per month, I mean, that would be huge for us, you know? And I bet if he focused on it, he could do a lot more than that. Yeah. So that's he's his good, He's really, really good right at that now. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he's like, he, he's the type of person, he wants to get on a jet, fly out, you know, shake hands, be like, let's let's host a webinar. Let's I'll come to your conference. And he's doing all that. So I, I think I'm pretty optimistic about this, I think. I This is the most exciting thing you've shared that's that, that's changing at Less Annoying CRM um, since we've been doing the podcast, in my opinion. I, I think this... I think this is actually going to work. Yeah, cool. I like it. You're, <laughs> That's exciting. Yeah, we you're doing pro. You're 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 spreading the gospel. <laughs> That's right. Um, we actually have two marketing things that we're making the priority this year. That's one of them. The other is an industry specific push. And I think between those two, I we kind of go in weird like ebbs and flows where either we have too many marketing ideas that we can't do them all, or we're just like, I have no idea what to do. And right now, I'm as excited about those two as I have been about anything in a long time. Do you have an update on the industry-specific stuff that you're working on over your uh, your your visit to your brothers? So what I was doing was really just putting the pieces in place so that Eunice, who's kind of going to do a marketing sales rotation for us later this year, can go do her thing. So what I did is when people sign up, they can pick an industry and get a template. It's because we have a month free trial, it's too early to say, has that affected conversion rates or anything? My my guess is probably not a lot, if at all. But the thing that it has changed is, first of all, for Alex's affiliate thing, we think business coaches are a really good fit. We know every business coach that comes in now. So he's reaching out to them. And then for Eunice's thing, she's still honing in on what industry, but it'll probably be travel agents. When a travel agent comes in, now she can call them up and be like, who's your host agency? Uh, you know, do, do you know anyone else in your agency that we can talk to? It's, it's, it's the empowering non-technical people with data that lets mm-hmm. them be smarter and more efficient. Yeah, it's exactly what we talked about whatever so cool. it was, five weeks ago or something. So that, that's awesome. Yeah, your whole, um, like I could, I feel like you have a, you're in a whole other mindset around marketing now than where you were when we first went on that trip. Yeah, I just honestly needed a wake up call. And the reality is the second half of last year wasn't very good from a growth standpoint. This is what I used to do in the early days of the company. Just, you know, nothing has ever been a slam dunk. I've never worked on any project that just clearly changed the trajectory of the business. But if every week a little improvements made here or there, it all adds up. So I'm hoping that this year we can really jumpstart stuff. Cool, cool. So, anyway, thanks for all your support. I'm feeling good about it. I'm glad that it's validated uh, that, that you are excited too. <laughs> yep, I really, I really am. Um, cool. So, uh, do you have anything else? Oh, I, I had something about no code, but I've, I've taken up enough time. Let's talk about that. Go, no, go ahead. I want to hear about no code. So, okay, you've you've done a lot of no code stuff, and for people who don't really know, no code is like using tools like drag and drop and stuff like that to build forms and kind of limited but like 
functional software, basically. Yeah, using like a visual interface, like you would kind of like you build PowerPoints, you mm-hmm. know, or Google Doc uh, to make a program and yeah. and build logic and you know basically act like a coder, which is someone who is like you who writes the code that makes those things happen. Right. So when you've talked about no code, you've been saying like you need to build kind of a prototype or an MVP of your company's product. That's one use for no code. In my case, that doesn't really apply. We have five software engineers here. We build our own software. That's not a thing. But another use I've heard for no code is it's really good for building internal tools where it's like the marketing department needs something more like specialized than a spreadsheet, but there's no end user. It's not getting sold. It's ultimately just a database with a UI on top of it, but it's more than a spreadsheet. And I've heard that no code can be really good for building internal tools like that. So I'm interested in exploring that a little bit. Um, I kind of referenced, I mentioned this to you on Slack the other day, but the what I was thinking about starting with is every time someone at our company, every time we interview a job candidate, everybody who's a part of the interview fills out a form and says how they liked the candidate. One of the fields is like rank them versus all the other people you interviewed. And the problem is even a day later, you forget all the people you interviewed. Um, so I'm, I've been toying with the idea of making a form with no code tools that will say, I know who you're logged in as, here are all of the recent interviews you've done so that you can rank them all easily. I like that. Yeah, it makes sense. I, one question I have um, real quickly, have you looked into like Recruity or any of the uh, ATS applica- applica- eh, application tracking systems, ATS, uh, that are maybe 50 bucks a month and do some of these things? I haven't, I, I've, I have in, in so much as to like identify that I think they're solving, they're designed for a different recruiting process than what we have. Um, it's probably worth taking a look at it. Though. The, the one specifically that I would look at is Recruity. They may have this feature. Um, they were the most innovative one that I saw. Um, but yeah, like if they don't, which they probably, this one's pretty unique where it's like you're asking individuals to stack rank and then kind of want to display how that's averaging out to the group. Um, that's that's a little bit that's a good idea. I don't know why Recruity wouldn't do that. Number one, um, mm-hmm. it's a really good idea. Um, so, but yeah, like I think that like either with Webflow, which is a front end tool that has a very lightweight back end called Collections that you can sync with a more sophisticated Google spreadsheet called Airtable, um, and then link up with Zapier, which is a a tool that basically lets no coders exchange data between two apps without having to know how to program an API application programming interface. Uh, so those three tools should allow you to do what you want. Um, there's some other more specific, uh, more, more focused interfaces that you could replace web, web Webflow with. Um, like uh, I think I can't remember the one I sent you, but like uh, there's, 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 there's some that are specifically built for internal tools that have like the whole, like, it's not meant to be pretty and it's not really as focused on awesome workflows and UX and customization, but it gives you a framework to display data and logic in a way that uh, you can customize. And it's typically used for like customer dashboards or employ internal dashboards. And it sounds like that would be a really good use case. Yeah. And I'm trying to look up what you sent me here. Uh, uh, stacker.app is what yeah. you sent me. Yeah, because I've used Webflow for, um, I built my wedding website with it. I'm pretty 
comfortable with using it for making like the design part of it. But does it have the concept of like a user being logged in as themselves? Yeah. So the way you handle that is with a tool like member stack, or you can even use Firebase um, for the user author, author authentication. Um, mm -hmm. So there's like member stack, member base, member full. And yeah, they create a login for Webflow. Interesting. For this you, is something I that I find so inaccessible about no code is any individual tool is easy to use, but you have to chain together like 20 different things to make anything, which is hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah. So there's definitely like a learning curve to get the tools in place. And then you have to learn each tool individually. And I think the thing that scares me the most about no code tools is if one of your apps in that chain breaks, the whole chain breaks. Mm -hmm. And so these things are very new. I like, I like, I like internal use cases primarily because they're not mission critical necessarily. If they go mm -hmm. down, you can not worry about it. But like when you're building a front, a client facing app, it gets a lot less, um, you, the risk tolerance for, for one of those apps breaking or going out of business or work changing the way that they work, um, or pivoting is, much, much lower. And so I, you know, it seems like a good use case for no code. Uh, but yeah, I totally, you're totally right. Like that is the scariest thing about no code is there, it takes multiple tools. Um, and, um, any one of they're, they're all like newbies and could pivot on a dime. There's one in St. Louis called Adalo or Adalo. I never know how to say it. Um, I think, you know, one of the founders there. I, I don't think I do actually, but I, yeah. I looked them up. I know who you're talking about. He he knew of less knowing CRM because you okay. guys are all dat and oh yeah uh, and St. Louis <laughs> but um, yeah he uh, so anyway he they're doing some cool stuff with no code but more for client fo focused so they're like kind of doing what Stacker's doing for the people who want to do build a build a, an app for their customers gotcha. um, it's less customizable than Webflow from a user experience standpoint but much there's much more built into one tool so you don't have to go you know stack as many things together. Cool. Cool. Well, yeah, I'll probably, I'm not in any rush on this. It's more that I want to learn no code than it is that I need this app. Like I could build it with normal code in like an hours, but one of these days I'm going to get around to uh, playing around with it and I'll, I'll give an update whenever, whenever I do that. No, thank you. That'd be cool. Anything else? No, that's it for me. Cool. Um, for me. Um, so uh, it's interesting. Like it, uh, this is, I was expecting to update on this, but I do want to share it with you. Um, so with, with group current, one of my companies, um, has been servicing Panda labs, the community that you visited. And we, uh, we're getting close to where our contract for Panda labs is up in June. And we're, we've built a new model, uh, based on member managed member based, uh, member based community. And it's at this point where we're starting to face some realities around, how much budget we have versus how much time it takes. You know, the classic, okay, I have, I have some fit here, some product mm -hmm. market fit, but how do I actually make this sustainable? And uh, so we, we had a board meeting last week and um, tried to get some clarity or around shared around the table with the board. So it, it's, we're kind of going through this like, not oh shit moment, but more of a, okay, how are we going to do this in the next four months? And, you know, now that we've got the model, the, the product model, right? How do we continue to get the model to like the next level that makes, make it, makes it su like super like su easy to retain members, which we need to add some features for, but also start automating 
and creating some systems that allow for the budget we have to sustain this. And these are always, I, I always find these conversations extremely stressful because you have a limited amount of time and resources to fix some pretty sophisticated, challenging problems. It's much easy. I would say it's a much better situation to be in than, oh, I, we don't, we aren't making any money and we, we don't know how to get to product market fit uh, or like product, some product fit here. But it's still like that next, it's still next level hard compared to just running a business that's working. Yeah. It sounds like kind of, there are a lot of business models that don't work with one or two or 10 customers, but they work with a hundred or a thousand. I mean, all software is this way, right? The upfront costs of building it are way more than what any individual customer will pay you. It sounds like you're kind of in a situation where the automation stuff that you could build, maybe it's not profitable to do it for one single client, but once it's built, you could scale it to five or 10 clients and then it's profitable. Exactly. And and I think where where group current is, is we have one client. And so we don't have the systems to justify building that for one client. And so it, what, what it's forcing is we, group current and Panda Labs need to figure out how Panda Labs can do that without software from group current. And so it's, it's a challenge. I, I have no doubt that we'll get through it, but it requires like a lot of education around the board and making sure everyone understands, hey, this is the resources we have. These are the things we need to do. Let's get on the same page with prioritization. And you know, we 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 need to get these things done. But there are certain like there are certain things that are more important than others. Let's make sure we're on the same page with getting those things done, and then move to the next one. Yeah. Um, and for the most part, uh, that, that this is kind of the first time we're having that conversation. But it always makes me uncomfortable, like and kind of like just stressful to have this conversation sometimes especially when there's a lot of people in the room, you got to get them on the same page with limited time. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah. Well, so, good luck with that. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Um, building, um, I'm, I'm, you know, one of our episodes a while ago was uh, around, uh, you know, one of our listeners and the problem he was having with prospecting and then a problem I was having with building your first customers. Mm-hmm. And we, I think we were both like at five or 10 users and needed to get to, wanted to get to more. Man, I've added three users this month, this week. I have meetings with two more people this week, and this is just barely scratching the surface of what's out there. So, um, I'm starting to realize I'm starting to generate a longer list of people, and either people are eligible for the beta program, and I have a currently a 99% move forward rate on those, or I should say 90% because I've talked to 10 people, um, and then some some of the people I'm moving into like referral sources, they're they're either startup founders or people who have spousal health insurance, but are in a situation that they don't get health insurance at work. And all of these people who are in that situation where they don't get health insurance themselves through work are surrounded by people in the same situation, whether it's coworkers, it's an industry thing, um, or, you know, just a, you know, a, 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 a cultural thing around what they, where they spend their time. It's uh, so I'm seeing this to be, I'm realizing that this is a very, this can be a very word of mouth referral driven business, which is awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it sounds like customer, like one of the topics we talked about in that episode where we were talking about how to get customers was the, you should put everything you've got into it. Once you have a basic product, not because you need the customers, but to prove that a model exists for reaching the customers, because it's not worth scaling the rest if you can't do that. 
it sounds like even though I'm sure you have a lot of growth, you can get through that. You're you're already past that point. That's proven. H- have you thought maybe it's time to focus on different stuff now? Um, I don't think I I, I I love what we said there. It was like 30, 20 to 30 percent on product, 70 to 80 percent on on customer acquisition. Most of my product work right now is going towards the second thing I want to update you on, which is licensing, regulatory checkboxes, certifications and appointments. I hit, I had a breakthrough yesterday. I signed with a general, I, I partnered with a general agency here in Utah. General agency is someone who basically goes, is the go between, between insurance companies and an, an insurance agent actually writing the business. And I found the perfect partner. They're focused on exactly what I'm focused on. They're appointed with all the carriers. So I probably in the next week will complete my appointments for all but one comp- insurance company. Um, oh, awesome. And, and that one insurance company is where all of my policies are, but, <laughs> but, but it's, uh, but they have a training that's not until March 10th. So I have to wait until I complete that training till they, till they can finalize that appointment. So by March 10th or 15th ish, a week after March 10th, I will be fully appointed. And I think, um, now that I have a clear, clear roadmap to that, I can start spending my 20% time on building out the actual product. But yeah. to, to, I, I don't think I want to spend more than that yet until, I am not able to continue to acquire, spend the time to acquire customers and service businesses and service yeah. existing ones. Would We're, you challenge that? No, no, no. What I'm thinking is like in, the the difference between building a product versus almost like faking it to validate the product. You like you can tell there's a demand and you have a way to reach customers. Um, it'd be interesting if there's a way to like make the way they interact with you seem like software, even if it's not so that you can prove like people would use this as a product. And then like, if you wanted, you could raise money on that or, or something else. Totally. So yeah, that's exactly what I'm, I'm going to start doing next, but I'm, I, I don't want to spend more than 20% time on that because I think, yeah. I think that that was a really good wake up call. I, I gotta, I need to put whatever 70% of my time on leg up health gets me in terms of customer acquisition and get that going. And I, I don't want to take off of that I don't think I can take off of that ever until I have another team member who's hundred percent focused on that. So, because it is like, that is the, that is the lifeblood. The risk I worry about those, uh, one or two episodes ago, you, I kind of asked, can you just make a whole business out of this? And you basically said, until you make things more efficient, it takes too much time to service each customer. And the, the concern I have is you get too many customers and then you're just spending all day you know, servicing them and you, you don't have any time to actually work on the product. Yeah. So if I get to that point with the time that I'm allocating to leg up health, I'll just allocate more t- of all of my time to leg up health and expand what I'm doing on the product. So I, I don't, because I'm not spending hundred percent of my time right now on leg up health, there's a whole lot more time I can allocate um, when I get there. And I actually don't, I actually have, I'm, I'm nervous about it, but I think now that I, now that I'm through the appointments, I'm going to be able to make progress on the software that you're talking about. And if I am making progress, that's too slow. I'll probably, you're probably right. Like I'll probably have to allocate more time from somewhere to it. Yeah. I'm very hesitant to take my, my foot off the gas pedal because of the topic we have today, which is I don't want to raise money in a non, in a dilute, excuse me, I don't want to raise money in a dilutive fashion. So, um, a lot of my ability to you know, take the product to the next level is going to be dependent on someone who potentially can code and I want to pay them cash. I don't want to give them equity. So it's uh, it gets it gets challenging. So maybe we can move into the topic. 
Yeah, sure. Go so, for it. so the topic today is um, leg up health. I do. I want to build it as a startup to last company. I want to maintain control, and I don't want to have um, capital. I don't want to have investor shareholder first mentality. Shareholder returns impact the way I operate the business in any way for the foreseeable future. Maybe when we're further along. I'd consider it. I never say never. I try not to ever say never on things, but right now, like it's a, it's a no. So it's, it's because of that, like most of my experience in bringing capital into a business has been around dilutive financing. So raising money, when I say dilutive financing, I mean, raising money from uh, venture capitalists, angel investors, or even giving stock options or equity to early employees um, to in, in exchange for a lower salary, those things are off the table for me. So I'm, you know, there. And, and it's funny, like that dilutive financing gets all the pub. So when you hear, when you listen to startup radio, you talk to startup founders, you talk to anyone who's in the space. There's like this playbook that revolves around raising dilutive financing. And so now that I'm not interested in that, I cannot. It, it has been so hard for me to understand what options, what the alternative options are um, in a reliable way. So I wanted to bring this topic to start to last one to force me to research it so we could talk about it. And two, I know you've actually acquired some non-dilutive financing. And I think you have some interesting perspectives on how you went about that, that you could share. Uh, so the topic is how to get non-dilutive funding for your startup. Um, I want, you know, I would like to leave um, with more confidence on how I'm thinking about this. I'd like to leave uh, learning from more specifically around your experience, um, like what what's gone well with. I think it's the Arches Grant that you've that Arch you've received grant, yeah. Arch Grant, um, and what hasn't, and then was it worth the time? Has it been worth it? Like the one thing that I'm super worried about as I think about this is there's there's many ways to achieve non-dilutive financing but some some may be better ROI on time um right now than others and I don't want to waste my I don't want to spend time that I could be spending on one source um that I you know should be spending on the other yeah you good with like, you good yeah and just to like elaborate on that last point the most basic form of non-dilutive funding is go get a job and then use the money from that job to to fund whatever your your startup is. So everything from that through taking out a loan, through winning pitch contests, there's lots of ways for money to come into a business that don't involve giving up equity. Yeah, maybe we can just start th- start there. So like in terms of structure of the conversation, I think maybe we can start with what I've learned and you can add to that or challenge it and um or just say that doesn't make any sense rick i think you're thinking about that the wrong way so you've been Um, researching this what have you found out so far yeah and then maybe we can talk about arches after that and then let's just see where the conversation goes from there um so 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 the way i look dilutive versus non-dilutive financing we talked about dilutive that's angels vc equity slash stock options given to employees advisors etc basically using equity as as a form of collateral or compensation. Um, then there's non-dilutive, which means you're you're bringing f- financing into the company in some way, whether directly or indirectly, to um, uh, 
make the operation go, but you're, you're doing that in a way that doesn't require you to give up equity of the company. So bootstrapping is one example. You go, you, you have your company make money and then you reinvest that that profit back into the business and either growth or something else. Yeah. Um, Revenue is the best form of funding you can have if that's an option. Yep. Um, and then, uh, you know, even like once you start making money, being thoughtful about how you work through tax credits, um, or tax deductions for your business so that you're, you know, you know, if you pay less taxes or you get tax credits, you're able to put more of your profit back into the business. Um, let's see. Uh, then there's grants um, and there's bu- different types of grants. There's what's called the SBIR grant, which is the federal grant system. It stands for Small Business uh, Innovation Research. Um, and that's a federal system. One, you know, usually, um, you know, th- these grants are tied to government R and D efforts. So they either need to, they come in the form of contract or, you know, requirements uh, associated with what the federal government is interested in researching or developing. Um, the, uh, there, you know, there are other state grants. Um, there's even city grants, uh, like the one, like the arch, uh, yeah, found founda- arch grant. Um, then there's foundation related grants. So there may be a philanthropist or nonprofit or community foundation that is interested in providing grants to for-profit enterprises to pursue a, a cause. So cause-based grants. Um, and then there's startup competitions um, and even debt. Like you could take on uh, f- you know, financing in exchange for interest um, that is non-dilutive. Um, and there's all sorts of loans available that are non-recourse or micro or backed by the federal government for small businesses that are just starting out for this very purpose. Um, and then I, I actually didn't even think about the one that you were thinking, which is go, you know, use cash flow from another job and put some percentage of that into the business that you're yeah. running. Well, normally bootstrapping involves eventually using your own revenue to fund the business, but it always starts somewhere else. The, the money is normally coming from the founder. Either they already have the money or if not, they're working a second job or something like that. Yeah. Why? I guess um, when I researched this, it, the reason I've been researching this for a while. Okay. So it kind of came to a head where it's like, I can't, I need to get clarity on this. I need to decide whether I should pursue this or just go make money. <laughs> Right. Like I, I, I have a pathway to revenue on like health. It's like, do I, do I spend time? Like one thing I'm thinking about is like, do I spend time trying to understand all this stuff and uh, go acquire it? Or do I just go, I've, at this point I can bootstrap this thing. I'm just going to focus on producing revenue and go. And, uh, man, it's just, I cannot believe how hard it is to get information specific. Like it's not hard to talk about the generalities of what these options are, but when you get into like the fine details and how to go get the money and how much time it's going to take and what the strings are that are attached to it. You know, I often, I'm often finding out about these things after they happen. I just got an email about a startup competition that's happening next week. Oh, the deadline was last year that you had to apply. (laughs) And I probably could compete pretty well in that competition and make 50 and get 50 grand from it. So part of my frustration is around, it's always, it always seems so hard. It just seems so hard to even understand this stuff. And then even harder to know about it 
the, you know, when, you know, be involved in it and go about it, you know, while running your business. Yeah. Um, I, I'm of the opinion that of the ones I'm aware of, the grants, the startup competitions, the pitch competitions, things like that, there's an element of, I'm a startup, you have money, give me the money. But a huge part of all of the ones I'm aware of is kind of the scene, like the startup scene. And a lot of the value you get out of it isn't the money, it's meeting people and feeling a sense of community and stuff like that. But it goes both ways also that that's what they expect from you. That it's not really just are you pitching your startup. It's like you kind of it, it's a a handshake agreement sort of to say I'm going to go spend my time showing coming to meetups and all that. A to to like you say to even know when are the deadlines and what are the things going on. But then the whole process it's it's a multi month process normally to apply. There's multiple rounds. You have to video yourself giving a pitch. All kinds of stuff. Yeah. So that's one thing I took I've taken away is and you're and you're validating is. This is a long play. It's not a short play. This isn't like go do a, you know, oh, I want to go, you know, raise some pitch competition money and some grant money. It's not like you're going to be able to do that in the next month or two. You have to like, right. pl- this is a couple, this is an annual multi, multi-year type and you have to, and you have to invest. I was talking to, um, I was just at an event uh, in downtown Salt Lake at uh, uh, something put on by Canvia Health Systems. But what's really cool is the Utah is very interested in the life sciences area. And so they send a lot of their economic development people to these meetups. I wouldn't call them meetups. Let's call them paid, you know, paid lunch and learns. It's a small, intimate group. And I was talking to one of the guys in the economic development office and he was telling me, he basically said, listen, if you're going to go the grant route, if you're going to go the pitch competition route, you have to be willing to go at it for a year and a half. Seriously. Mm -hmm. You can't just like put like dip your toe in and expect results. But he did say, he said, if you go all in and you go after this, you will get money. It's there. And it's not very competitive from what I can understand. I guess it, I mean, I think it's somewhat competitive, like at least relative the- to VC money. Okay. That's fair. I, I think like, like if you think about the pool of people and companies that you're competing with for, let's call it a million and a half seed round, versus the pool of people you're competing with and companies that you're competing with for a $50,000 pitch competition. I think, uh, you know, the, you're playing in a smaller pool when you're going after $50,000. Yeah, absolutely. Although you can also look at that and say, well, what does that tell you? It tells you the sophisticated entrepreneurs are not going to these things for the most part. Yeah. I guess that's why the question there that's interesting to me is why not? And if I understood what, is it because it's just a it's hard. Is it because they don't care about bootstrapping and, and they, they are, there's a lot of sophisticated entrepreneurs who, who are, you know, are want dilutive capital and they're going that route. But what about the sophisticated entrepreneurs who, who don't want to take on dilutive capital and, and want non-dilutive financing? Like what are they doing and why aren't they doing this? That's a good point. So yeah, if you're going to go raise that $1.5 million seed round, what's the point of spending any time on $50,000, right? Exactly. that's why they're not doing it. I buy that. That's fair. Um, the, what I was kind of going to say, the approach I would take is when you're raising VC money, I've never done it, but I, I follow it just because I'm spiteful and hate it and want to know more about my enemy. And you, um, can't, you can't get away from it. That's all you can't get away from it. About. Like, it's like, <laughs> that's true. Oh, too. I need to raise my round. Like I'm, I'm running around like a dog raising my round. Uh, I'm not focused on my customers because I'm raising my round. It's like, right. It's crazy. So there's a, there's a term in that world. Like that would be referred to as like a strategic investor 
or uh, well, st- the strategic can go both ways, I guess. I'm talking about raising money strategically, where is, or smart money maybe is a better way to look at this, where I'm raising money from this investor. Yes, they're going to give me money, but a million different people would give me the 100000 the $200,000 this investor is giving me. What I really want is maybe it's mentorship, maybe it's a connection, maybe this person runs a business that you want to partner with, and by having them as an investor, that that's kind of a strategic, like smart money rather than just dumb money. I think you should look at a lot of these pitch contests as uh, that, where if you just view it as money, especially for someone like you, who you've had a successful history of consulting gigs being paid very, very well, you're not someone who struggles to make money just by working. Um, This will take a lot of work and probably your hourly return on it will be less than it would be if you just went and consulted. That's interesting. I want to stick on that for a second. What you're basically saying is... In order to decide which one of these routes or multiple boxes to check in terms of how I'm going to finance leg up health, I need to think about the return on time investment. I think so. And I and and maximize like if I have probably one of these has the highest return on time investment, and that's probably where I should be spending most of my I should be maxing that out right now. Unless and, there's one of these other soft elements around the outside. It could be connections. It could be your learning, something like that. Yeah. And so return on time has to, f- has to take into account both ca- like cash ba- based return on time, but also relationships. Um, and let's just call it awareness and branding value, learning value, which I totally like, that's not an easy calculation to make with an Excel spreadsheet, but it's certainly something you can, you can, it's a framework for working through this um, so that I can get confident about what where I'm spending my time. Yeah. And so let's just use three simple options to highlight how this would work. You could go consult. You know how to do it. It's You like it. You, you get paid well. It's just cash, though. It, it really does nothing to further your other goals. You could go- well, I yeah. would also add there on consulting that it's incredibly brain intensive and not like, I'm not talking about like a health. I'm talking about someone else's business. Right. And it's, um, and then the relationships are usually in another industry because I can't have conflict that isn't going to help leg up health. Right. So you're putting time, effort, energy into it, and you're just getting money back, but it's probably the most money you could get. Then let's look at, you could go just hustle to get more clients for, uh, leg up health and probably the, the financial return for that is way lower, but you're building an actual customer base. You're learning from talking to customers. So it's the same amount of time is going to get you less money, but it's going to further your actual business. Goals. But it's rec- and it's recurring, and it's recurring, sure. Yep. But even factoring that in, like there's a some present present dollar value of recurring revenue. Probably consulting still has better pure financial ROI right now. I bet you're putting a lot of effort. You're going and meeting each person to get thirty dollars a month out of them. Anyway, whether that's true or not, this is kind of just a framework to walk through it. And then you can look at pitch competitions. You're probably not furthering the customer development journey in the same way, but you might but be getting pe- connections with- But the people who are at the pitch competitions are my target user. They are st- yeah, startup that's founders. F- that's fair, but probably it's not as directly moving the ball forward as going out and trying to get customers would, but it's a different type of benefit that I don't know if you care about being known in the scene and having like, if you want, like, let's say you want to hire that first programmer. Winning a pitch contest is going to make that easier than just going out and doing a consulting gig. So there's less money for both the the bootstrapping route and the pitch contest route, but there's other benefits that, like you say, are hard to value. 
Yeah, but this this is really good. Look, can we keep going through? What about debt? Yeah, so there's different ways to raise debt. I think at this point, that's going to be a hard option for you. And real quick, if I because I just listened to a podcast that was awesome about this. Um, out of beta, one of the hosts of the Out of Beta podcast is Matt Winsing, I think his name is. He runs a startup that basically does forecasting for SaaS companies, for SaaS startups. And he's talking a lot about if I know all these metrics about the SaaS company, I would be in an amazing position to offer them loans, right? What he basically, the way he describes this is you raise equity, dilutive financing in a world where there's a tremendous uncertainty and you can't really, you don't know that what you're going to do is going to work. You raise debt when it's like, I have a machine where I put money at the top and I get more money at the bottom. Uh, do, do you agree with that sort of? Yes. Yeah, you have to you have to have a a, a coin operated machine for debt to make sense, right? So what otherwise, he's how are you going to pay it back? Exactly, it's too much risk for everybody involved, including you, because you probably have to make a personal guarantee right now if you want debt, and like it could bankrupt you if you can't pay it back. Yeah, I won't either get the debt, or I'll have to. It'll come with a recourse that I'm not going to. It's going to cause the negative stress that is anti startup to last. Yeah. And historically, debt's been really hard to raise for SaaS companies like ours because we don't have any, like, in, like at a more traditional company, let's say we want to start a brewery. It's like, I need to buy a million dollars worth of equipment to brew beer. If it fails, the equipment's now worth $800,000 and you can take it back. But there, there's some revenue-based stuff now uh, for SaaS stuff. And there's also um, some, some government-backed uh, non-recourse stuff that is meant for this purpose. Um, but it, you know, yeah, I, I, I hear you totally. What Matt Winsing said that I thought was really interesting. Maybe this is obvious to, to most people, but I hadn't really thought of it this way. A typical company that raises venture capital money, they raise this big pile, like let's call it 1.5 million for your seed round. And it's really though, like several different raises. It's like, some of this is to pay my, the founder's salary. Some of this is the coin operated part. Some of this is to go hire employees, which has a lot more risk than the coin operated part. And what he's saying is, Break all the different parts of your business into like what the risk profile is, and then figure out how to finance each of those separately. Um, And for you, you don't have the coin operated part yet. So I would say don't do debt yet. But once you do, that could be a great option. Totally. Um, So debt, not right now, but maybe later. I really like um, going through. It's interesting. In order to really think about this, uh, return on time the right way. I really do have to have a thoughtful financial plan and use of capital, right? Like, so uh, if I don't have a plan of how, like, if I had one more dollar, here's how I would put it. Here's what I would invest it in next. Like, next, let's call it the, the financial term for this is NBI, next best investment. Right now, my best investment, I'm investing my time, right? Leg of Health has no revenue. I can't get revenue until I finalize these appointments with the carriers, but revenue is going to come in. Before I even think about like where to get more like cash other than the revenue that's going to come in, I should start thinking about where I'd invest the money if I had more cash. And once I can categorize those into buckets, hey, this would be related to hiring a you know a service person. This would be related to acquiring customers or testing you know ad spend. Um, this would be related to um, technology development and support. Maybe this would be, you know, this bucket's related to getting some advisors on board who can help me think through longer strategic planning issues. That gets really interesting. Yeah. Oh, this is, oh, and, and this bucket's for paying me. Right, right. Right. Like that's good. That, that I think would say, okay, well, 
I could look at each of those individually and say, what's the best way to fund this one, this one, this one, and start thinking about how the, you know, different, uh, of these different non-dilutive financing buckets might apply. Mm-hmm. Like, inv- like investing in, in six months, once I figured out coin operated debt becomes something that I want. Well, that debt doesn't just happen. Like I might want to, if, if I am pretty confident that, you know, I'm going to want to raise debt towards the end of this year. I need to start talking to bankers. Mm-hmm. I need to start that. Pro- I need to start understanding where the, where the people are. So that was quite useful, actually. I really, I, I see like step one, build it. It's you know, build your financial plan, three year financial plan, two one and a half year financial plan, whatever it is. Break those financial plans by use of capital, and then f- figure out what the best way to fund each of those uses of capital is in order. I very clear to me. Cool. Now that I, I think that's like a good framework. The thing that I maybe want to go back to is there's all these other side benefits of some of these that aren't financial. Um, we, you know, we originally, I, I think the main theme you had in mind with this topic is like grants and startup competitions and stuff like that. Um, my guess is that you will find it's not worth the time it takes, except if you can benefit from increasing your profile in the community. I normally say there's no benefit to that at all, but in your case, you're a mostly non-technical founder who knows pretty soon you're going to want a technical hire. I could see that really furthering your goals there. Yeah, and I, I, I'm also I'm in a heavily regulated industry, and knowing who's who at the health insurance companies, at the uh, government, at the governmental offices, and economic development. I mean, you know, I'm focused on Utah. Like, I'm not. Like this, this is very regional based. Um, and then I'm a, on top of this, I'm a word of mouth driven business. So brand awareness is, and then on top of that, the people who are competing in the, for these grants, uh, are my, you know, and, and for, in these comp, uh, startup competitions, pitch competitions are the people who would, my product resonates with and who know 15 other people who this resonates with. So I'm seeing it like as perhaps pitch competitions are the primary reason to do them is not to get win the pitch competition. It's to generate leads and, and drive brand awareness for all of the reasons that you've mentioned and that I've mentioned. Yeah. And you can limit that. That's nice. That's a nice constraint to put on it because there's a lot of pitch competitions like arch grants is one here in St. Louis. And I think as far as they go, it's actually a really good one. Um, they, they give $50,000, which is a pretty decent chunk of money, not many strings attached, except live in St. Louis for one year, um, for one year. Yeah. Uh, you, if, if it's not primarily a source of money, it's pri- primarily a source of this other stuff. You get nothing out of networking with St. Louis, the, the St. Louis startup community. So this really narrows the field for you because one of the warnings I was going to give, I know, uh, some people who almost got addicted to money from these pitch contests. Cause I think if you're good at it, you're what, what your friend told you is right. That the money's there. You just have to go take it. Um, I know some people who have for years, I'm talking six plus years, been funding their business by winning pitch contests. And it's like, you need to get off the teat at some point, you know, um, by, by putting a limit on it and saying, I'm in this community, there's three major ones. Those are the only ones I'm going to pay attention to. And that's it. I think that would be a good balance to strike here. I agree. Totally. Um, and then, uh, you know, the other thing is like, how much do I want to raise, which is going to be driven by that exercise we talked about earlier. And so 
at some point, maybe the pitch competitions become a bad use of time. But I do, I, you know, right now I, I, I'm doing the mental math in my head and I, I feel like it's worth my time to, it, you know, I, I'm feeling yeah. pretty confident that it's worth some amount of time to spend in pitch competitions and understanding and applying for local grants. The thing I want to push back on a little bit from what you said is the idea that like this is a way to get leads. Um, I think it could be, but do you go to like, I guess you go to Panda Labs events in Park City. Do you go to any like Salt Lake startup events or anything? Yeah. You do? I just came my, from my exp- one. I'm not sure how similar it is to the St. Louis ones, but my experience is far, far too many people are at these events trying to pitch their shit. And I think if you engage, we, we've said this, I forget what the topic was, but we kind of said the way to engage with the community is to do it authentically and not be trying to sell them. I think you need to go in there that way. It will lead to leads. But if you go in there saying, I'm finding customers in this specific event, I don't think that's going to go well. Yeah, I totally agree. And I sometimes, I know this, you know this, I, I bypass what I mean by get like leads. Every good lead starts with a relate. Like when you're at a networking event, if you ever want that to turn into a real lead, it starts with a relationship first. If you can't crack a relationship with someone, it's unlikely that you're going to turn them into a, a great lead or have any sort of self-respect or respect from them. So yeah, what I mean is like, I think I could build relationships with potential customers um, and awareness with potential customers. And maybe that could turn into a customer at some point. Well, yeah, or I mean, it seems like potentially maybe very few customers at first, but it turns into a really reliable source of customers. Because what I could imagine, I think one of the main concerns people have when starting a startup is I'm about to lose my health insurance if I leave my job. What if every advisor in Salt Lake is like, health insurance sucks. I don't know anything about it. Go talk to Rick. Yep. Like that's what you want to be, which is maybe for years that won't really pay off. But if you get yourself in those communities, it could work. Exactly. And and I'm realizing more and more that this is a word of mouth driven business. So the more people who can draw, like when they can understand what the leg up health brand is stands for and can identify like wh- what problem and customer it solves that problem for, the more people are going to say, Hey, you should check out leg up. You should check out leg up health. And I think that investing in that both through, you know, the way I'm going to, going to build the product and serve the customer and incentivize the customer to refer plus how I'm spending my time in this other areas is, is um, it is the marketing strategy, honestly. Yeah. Honestly, I'm just kind of salivating over how clear the positioning would be like specifically going after startup people that rather than do you use individual health insurance? I can help being like, you have like the the one thing between you and your dreams is health insurance. I'm going to take that off your plate. The positioning there would be so clean. Oh yeah, yeah, and it it gets even cl- like the, the, what I really am learning about this business. And this is not related to the topic, but I just want to talk about it real quick. Is that there are certain niches of workers, whether it's startup people, small business people, like dentists, dental hygienists, physical. Th- no, not physical therapists, uh, mental, um, the uh, massage therapists, hairstylists, and they all have their own sort of community of people who, when you go talk to them, one of their number one concerns is, I don't have, is health insurance yeah. related to their work. And their yeah, profession. if you don't have group insurance, that's one of the main things you're stressed out about in your life. Totally. And so I think, uh, like the one thing getting in the way of you being a long term hairstylist. It's health insurance. I'm going to take it off your plate. There's really interesting positioning within each of these categories that 
lends itself to some strong word of mouth brand recognition. Yeah. So awesome. Yeah. I, uh, I guess, um, going towards, I guess, can you quickly, and then move to takeaways and you got, we got five minutes. So can you talk about your experience with arches, how you, how much time it took? Was it worth it? What's your assessment? Mm -hmm. And and I know you probably can't say any, you know, anything on here that's like negative about arches (laughs) or arch, Uh, arch grant. So arch grants, you know, be as transparent and honest as possible without, yeah. Without no, yeah. So I won, I won an arch grant in 2014. Arch grants is a $50,000 grant to give to, I think 20 startups per year. I think like there are a lot of things like this. Uh, there are certain things that make arch grants unique, but there are a lot of local grant things. And the, the deals, it's a way to attract startups to, to come to St. Louis. Um, overall, I think it was a really good experience, but it was a lot of work applying. It's like, you have to do a written application and then you have to do like, well, it's probably changed since I applied because it was years ago, but I had to do a video application and then we had to fly. I was in San Francisco at the time. We had to fly to St. Louis and uh, do like a basically full day pitch thing. Um, just the the cost of flying to St. Louis, you've already spent, if you fly a three person team, you've already spent a decent chunk of your eventual winnings just through the application process, not to mention the time. Um, if I weren't already moving to St. Louis, I wouldn't have done it to be honest, just because uh, it's a hell of a price to pay. Say, I'm going to move cities. I'm going to pay all my moving expenses. You just spent the whole $50,000 moving at that point. Not not literally, but close. But having said that, I mean, for an early stage business, if you go through the process, A, you get the $50,000, which is awesome. And B, it's an immediate sense of credibility that you can give to anyone. Everyone in St. Louis knows what Arch Grants is. I could go to... Now, we don't sell to enterprises or anything, so we never took advantage of this. But a big benefit. I could go to Anheuser-Busch. I could go to Monsanto. I could go to one of the big companies here and be like, we want an arch grant, have an executive meet with us. And they'd just be like, sure, like no problem. So that's that's one of the big benefits. They also give in-kind stuff. Like you get a certain amount of legal services and all that. I found all that to be mostly worthless for me, but I think maybe other people have made better use of that. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I think uh, what I was... Yeah. There's, there's sort of the... Mu- I, I, I categorize grants and pitch competitions pretty similarly. There's, mm-hmm. there's the money that you can get if you win. There's the relationships you get if you, regardless, and the the brand awareness that you get regardless of whether you win. Then there's the credibility if you win, and maybe that's more valuable than the money. Yeah, because the normal way to get that credibility is to raise money from a respected investor. If you're not going that route, how do you get anyone else to give you a stamp of approval? Winning one of these competitions is a good way. Yeah. So th- exactly. So for a startup to last company that's an- that's not going to raise through to funding, one challenge you have is how do you get external credibility around what you're building? Yeah. Pitch competitions are one way to do that. Grants are one way to do that. Yeah. Just don't go crazy with it because if you win one good one, great. But there are so many out there, and and diminishing returns hit pretty quickly there. Real quickly, last question: um, Are there any other advantages to going after non-dilutive funding like grants, like uh, tax, let's, uh, like uh, pitch competitions that you can think of that we haven't mentioned? I mean, I'm sure we could sit here and talk about smaller ones, but I, th- I think we covered the foundations in my opinion. Cool. Well, then I'll move to takeaways. I I, I have way more confidence in how I'm thinking about this. So cool. check. Um, I also feel that you've given me a good explanation around why ARCH grants was worth it for you. Um, and I think I can, I will be able to navigate the specifics of the Utah 
grant and pitch competition space to make a decision on whether or not it's going to be worth it for me. Uh, we talked about that framework, huge benefit for me, figure out where, what my uses of capital are. I haven't really thought through that. It's a great idea. Like if I had money, where would I spend it? What's my next best investment? Yeah. I mean, that list? could even be an episode if we wanted to dive into that sometime. That's let's do it in two weeks. I think it's a great idea. Um, and then the other thing is just calculating return on time invested in each of these categories. I think that is much more, it's not just money. It's, it's all the things that we talked about. It's, um, I won't repeat them. And then, uh, finally, I think, uh, the other thing I'm taking away is that because I'm focused on Utah for my business, I should probably, uh, probably constrain myself to non-dilutive financing options in Utah for now and exhaust those, um, because that's where I'm gonna get my biggest bang for time spent. Yep. I think that all sounds right. Anything else? No. All right. This was fun. Cool. Yeah. Thank you for covering. We we were a little nervous about this topic because neither of us are experts on it, but I actually liked it. It was very exploratory. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, I have two favors to ask. First, please write a review on the podcast app of your choice because reviews play a huge role in helping other people discover useful podcasts. Second, if you know any founders or aspiring founders of independent startups, please tell them about Startup to Last. And if you'd like to review past topics and show notes, visit startuptolast.com. See you next week. See ya.